Hello, I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And I want to welcome you to this edition of our podcast. Our guest today is the very distinguished Jennifer Manukin, dean of the UCLA Law School. We'll hear a great deal more about her and about legal education and legal practice as we focus on the current issues that affect so, so many of us. If you would like MCLE credit, for listening to this podcast for the hour. It's easy to obtain. You can listen to the podcast, as you may, outside the Daily Journal paywall at dailyjournal.com. And on that website, dailyjournal.com, you'll see a link to an MCLE test for this podcast and for others as well. And by filling it out electronically, sending it into the Daily Journal, you may obtain, in the hour's credit, uh, MCLA credit for listening to this podcast. Our guest who we will be speaking with is Jennifer Manukin, who is finishing her fifth year as the dean of the UCLA Law School. She's also the Ralph and Shirley Shapiro Professor of Law. She served in numerous administrative positions as vice dean of the law school uh, before her appointment. She not only has degrees, an undergraduate degree uh, from Harvard and a law degree from Yale, but she has a PhD from MIT in the history and social study of science and technology, which is so and especially relevant to what we're going through so much of in the legal profession. Uh, she's the distinguished scholar, and we'll talk about this in the area of evidence, one of the people on the new Wigmore, a treatise on evidence, and on the book Modern Scientific Evidence. It's a real pleasure. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. We much appreciate it. Howard, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I'm very much looking forward to this chance to talk to you. I'm really interested, before we get to larger issues of legal education that we'll talk about, is your focus on evidence as the area of your, your academic specialty. Uh, mm -hmm. Many of us, you know, considered evidence was abstruse. Uh, you learned it. You learned that if you're going to be a trial lawyer, you dealt with incredible technicalities, learned how to practice, learned about foundations. But it was pretty set. The issue was complexity, uh, not not change. And But here we are, and you have chosen to make this your area of expertise because of the change. Tell us what, what led to that. Why, why focus on evidence in today's world? Sure, absolutely. Um, so well, I think what I find most exciting and interesting about evidence as an area is precisely that it's really practical and grounded and affect, affects um, trials and outcomes, but that it also does raise big questions about how we know things, about how we think about proof, about what we find persuasive. And so what I find most exciting is that blend of uh, the concrete and the practical and the big and the conceptual. So in my career as a scholar, I've thought about areas, um, I've spent a lot of time on forensic science evidence, for example, which, you know, plays an incredibly important role, especially in many criminal cases, but which, where it also turns out that there um, really, in many areas, wasn't enough scientific validation, uh, careful scrutiny, detailed studies to really support the kinds of claims made in court. So I'm very interested in, in, um, in thinking about how we prove things and how we should prove things and also looking at the concrete, grounded dimensions of admissibility and how we think about um, persuading jurors and judges. And that's so important. I mean, we talk about very basic issues. I know there was a time not too long ago when, for example, authenticity was was not everyone knew how, how you proved authenticity, how you established the authenticity of documents that have them introduced, photographs, recordings. It was simply understood. You knew the process, books written on foundations that were required, and it was done. Now suddenly we're in right. a we're in a digital age. Exactly. Now these questions of authentication and whether you can uh, assume that something is what it seems to be, or how you go about establishing that have gotten much, much more complicated. Um, you know, what's interesting, though, is that actually there are grains, little little elements of these same issues going much further back than you might have expected. In fact, the early history of photography, um, when it was first being used in court, it wasn't uh, obvious how you would go about authenticating a photograph. Could you um, depend on the process? Or did you even then have to worry about alteration, fraud, uh, the chances that it had been um, 
doctored in some way. Our, our, our techniques for doctoring have gotten vastly more sophisticated since, you know, the late 19th century. Uh, but those, those worries actually appear even in some of the early cases around photography. I'm sorry, become part of a famous discussion. I know there's always been a debate over one of the famous Ansel Adams photographs taken of the Eastern Sierras where there's a, a dark, uh, looks like the effect of a cloud on the mountains, and everyone has always wondered what angle the sun would possibly be at at what time of day to cast that particular shadow. And it turns out that he that's did right. it. He did it in the dark room. And uh, so these yeah, that's are, right. That's a great example, right? I mean, so these, these you know dark room doctoring is not a it's not a new thing. We may not have dark rooms anymore. That may be more virtual. But you know, though obviously it a a broader and more significant challenge now. But it is, I think, interesting to see that the, when we go back in history, we can find instances of the same concerns uh, framed differently, but still present. Well, thank you. I really, I wanted to ask about that just to, to talk about it because it's such an interesting issue. But also, you know, one of the criticisms uh, sometimes, so I think often not justified, but often is made, is, is a split between the academic legal world and the practical legal world and that so much of the connection has now fallen to CLE classes and bar associations and law firms. And I, I just think it's it's really exciting to go over what you've done in terms of bringing together the world, not just the world of academia, but, but the great scientific knowledge to the daily, to the daily practice of law, to the kind of problems that every, uh, every lawyer uh, has to deal with and that every lawyer has to know about, which brings us to issues of legal education. I feel like the more that we can bring these communities together to be engaging, the better for the legal profession. I mean, I've had the opportunity to spend a lot of time talking, talk, time talking to judges about some of these evidentiary and admissibility issues. And I always uh, learn from those conversations and I hope contribute to them too. And the same goes with uh, practicing lawyers. I think it's really important for us to be deepening and thickening, thickening the links across legal academia the bar and the judiciary. And the more we can do that, I think the better all around. Yeah. And that's one of the things, of course, that's happened. And you've done it at the Law School, not just adding clinics, but any adjuncts in particular areas. So the bar becomes part of the academy in the same way the academic interest focuses on the on the daily practice. I, I want to ask you especially, that's a, about when we talk about what people need to know, what young, what law students need to know to become lawyers, it's difficult to have any discussion with a law dean in California without talking about the California bar exam. Uh, yes, it and is. the kind of effect it has on law students. We've seen the, the really extraordinarily low passage rate. I mean, it doesn't affect, we should be clear about this when you talk about it. UCLA has always been among the, had among the highest and sometimes the very highest bar passage rates. And it's not, not a problem. I know for you, it's a problem for the whole profession. What do we do about the extraordinary number of people from a wide range of law schools who spend three years in school, all the effort that's involved, all the support that's involved, financial and otherwise, and then find out that fewer than half pass the first time and there's some significant percentage that don't pass. How do we deal with that with that issue? Howard, thank you for the question. I I uh I do think there's something a little bit broken right now about um how the bar exam is operating, especially in California. Um, California has uh the second highest cut score in the country. It's second only to Delaware, where, you know, I'm just honestly, a tiny number of people take the bar each year, as opposed to the thousands here in California. And uh, California's bar cut scores, one and a half standard deviations above the national uh, average. And it means, in my opinion, that there are a great many people who are, in fact, minimally qualified to practice law, who aren't pa- passing the first time. And I think that has really significant costs. At UCLA Law School, I'm very proud of our bar passage rate. We're usually somewhere in the high 80s. It's typically one of the couple of highest in the state. Um, but, you know, that still means that we have a decent number of people, more than 10%, who took the bar and didn't pass the first time. And I'm here to tell you that nearly every one of them is minimally qualified to practice law. And uh, at many schools, the, the percentage that's passing the first time from ABA-accredited schools is significantly lower. And most of those students are minimally qualified to practice law and would have passed in virtually any other state in the country. And that's, it's just, it's very concerning. It's even more concerning because 
California's uh, atypically high cut score has a disproportionate effect on diverse candidates. A disproportionate percentage of candidates um, of color fall into the, the, the place in between the national average and California's atypically high cut score. And so from the perspective of both fairness and encouraging much needed diversity in this profession, I think it's really um, unfortunate that California has stayed wedded thus far to this elevated cut score. Yeah. Uh, I hope uh, I hope we'll see change. Well, I must tell you, I have uh, spent more of my life uh, on the bar exam than I even care to remember, because in addition to teaching, teaching some of the basic courses, when I taught at USC for about 20 years, I taught in a bar review class, contracts, real property, wills and trusts, how to study the exam extensively. And many years after that, after I stopped doing that, when I went on the Board of Governors of the State Bar, uh, three years before I was State Bar President, for those three years, I was the Board uh, the board of Governors uh, liaison to the Committee of Bar Examiners. I attended every meeting of the Committee of Bar Examiners for three years, attended the meetings where the questions were drafted, and attended the gradings, the initial grading sessions where grades were normalized. And... Even then, I realized, but I, this was now 12, 13 years ago, uh, that the, the bar exam is superbly administered. I mean, in terms of fairness, in terms of the mechanics, mm -hmm. which is what everyone focused on, it can't be faulted. There was, uh, during the years I was there, one year there was an earthquake 10 minutes before noon that affected some students in a San Bernardino location. And psychometricians put enormous effort into normalizing those scores. And in fact, a group of people were giving passing grades because of what they would have achieved in that 10-minute period. So the focus of the Committee of Bar Examiners always has been on what can be called the fairness and precision of whatever the goal is. So there's no fault of the bar exam for how it's administered. But the big question is not being asked. And the big question is, you know, what is what do you need to be admitted to practice, not how precisely are you administering exam, but what final measure do you use? What are the skills that are necessary? And one proposal to deal with all of this, and I know it's now on the agenda of, of the Board of Governors, is to do the uniform bar exam and, right. and, and accept, for example, the New York cut score. You simply say, right. we're doing the uniform bar exam, uh, which is given now taken, I think, 38 states, and we're going to take the New York cut score. There can't be that much difference between skills necessary in New York and California. And let's end the political problem. Is that something that you might agree with? I would agree with that. I would be very enthusiastic um, about both of those possibilities. I mean, there's really two different questions. And I liked your answers to both of them, Howard, personally. Um, one is whether California should consider the UBE, uh, the uniform bar exam, which now is um used by a majority of states, more than a majority of states across the country. Um, and the second is, what should the cut score be? Um, I am a fan of the idea of encouraging greater bar portability. I think that while there are obviously local differences and California is, you know, an extraordinary state in all kinds of ways, I think that uh, making it easier for professionals to cross markets at the end of the day is probably a good thing. And the UBE does that. Um, but also it kind of separates this question of the cut score. I would also be a fan of going with New York's cut score. That that makes, I agree with you, New York's got a very sophisticated bar, just like California does. And um, that would make sense to me. But one of the great things about shifting to the UBE is that if California wants to have an especially high cut score, at least students who took it here and didn't meet this cut score, could move, could go somewhere else if they, if they, if they chose. And I think that that would have um, a benefit, and it would also have a real psychological benefit because they know they were able to practice. And if they decide to retake it here in California, they would probably do that from a psychologically better place, um, knowing that if they'd already met, you know, New York's cut score or Arizona's or or wherever that that that, that was an option. Well, I also think it could have a very beneficial effect on many California law schools in terms of national recruitment. I know you have no issue. UCLA is a national law school as part of a group of schools, ABA schools that are national law schools in California. But still, in all, take the, take the New York market. It's a huge market for law students. And if California had the uniform bar exam, a New York student who wanted to also be able to practice in New York 
would say, wait a minute, I can go to California law school, say, come here, you'll take the same exam. You you could be qualified to practice in both California and New York. So it could yes. be a, a significant advantage uh, to California schools in recruiting uh, out-of-state uh, students, especially it, for major metropolitan it, areas. It would also help California employers, because right now, if they end up hiring somebody who's licensed elsewhere, that person has to take, depending on the circumstances, either the full exam or the attorney's exam. And that's a big hurdle. And I hear from uh, both public interest lawyers and um, partners at law firms about experiences where they hire a talented, qualified person from another state. Um, that person doesn't uh, end up passing California. And it's a it's not that they're, you can't say they're not minimally qualified. They've been successfully practicing law in, in another place for, for a number of years. Um, and yet this becomes a, a, a really challenging hurdle. Of course, this year, it's all even more challenging and complicated because, you know, we're in the midst of a global pandemic and it's not altogether clear that anybody will be able to sit for the bar in the ordinary way. So that's, that makes this entire situation you know, that much more difficult and more painful. But one of the one of the issues of, you know, so multi-jurisdictional practice, I mean, let's be real about this. Lawyers in law firms are on the phone, if not even before the pandemic, on the phone all the time with lawyers from offices around the country, from different offices of the same firm, where everyone comes in and making judgments on whatever legal issue pops up, whether it's the Delaware Corporation Law, the California Corporation Law, the Illinois Law on Employment. Everyone chimes in. At, at, a, at a, yes. a significant level of law practice, we have a de facto multi-jurisdictional practice, and it's only in this narrow area uh, that people continue to to focus on, on, on the uniqueness. Uh, and so the UBE, uh, it's now being considered, and I think it will be very interesting to see uh, the way the bar exam, the way the bar board, there are really three, three, three things involved, the committee of bar examiners, the board of governors, and ultimately the Supreme Court makes the decision, but Supreme Court of yes, California. ultimately it is the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court has recently said that they're going to uh, form a task force, a blue ribbon task force to look at some of these questions. Yeah. And so I do hope there'll be a chance to, to visit them thoughtfully um, in a way that will benefit um, the state and its lawyers and and uh, those who want access to justice as well as as well as our law. Now you mentioned access to justice, and we're talking about quali qualification to practice law. Let's talk about who's coming to law school now. Am I wrong in having a sense that over the past several years, even decade or more? that when you talk to students about their motives for becoming lawyers, that there's a difference today than there was a generation ago? I think that's right. I guess I, I would say that I think that the number of students who are going to law school in the hopes of making a difference and with a commitment to um, the public interest, public service, and giving back as an important piece of their uh, of their professional pathway uh, has increased. Um, we've seen, I mean, UCLA's long been a school that is, uh, known as a very strong school for public interest. It's something we are very proud of and take enormously seriously. Um, and even for us, uh, the number of applicants to our, our, um, exceptional, um, public interest law and policy program, our Epstein program has doubled in just the last few years. And many of our students who aren't part of that program nonetheless are deeply committed uh, to wanting to see law as a tool for bringing about positive change um, as either their the core of their professional hopes or as a meaningful piece of what they want to do after they graduate. Yeah, and that's so important in what you do because one, one of the things that has happened is that law firms have come to recognize that in, if they want to attract the very best students, they need to be active in the pro bono area. They need to be active in certain social issues in order to attract those students. So the, the reason for students, people becoming lawyers, going to law school and they're the kind of career they desire has really impacted uh, the way law firms are organized and their priorities as well. Howard, it's not just uh, that students have been more interested in public interest over the last few years, though, though certainly that's the case. I will say that this moment in particular is, uh, is accelerating that even more. I think as we uh, look at the challenges that this country is facing, as we think about the structural racism that that's you know, still a scourge. And as we, as we endeavor to imagine how this country could be better, I see so many of my students deeply 
concerned and engaged with these questions uh, and my faculty and my alumni community too. Um, so I think that this, this, this focus on how law can be a, a tool um, for making things better and the times when law is not necessarily a tool um, that works in that way are going to continue to be on everybody's mind for a good deal of time to come. And this, what this does is validates uh, to the extent people's motives and interests in becoming lawyers were to have an effect on the larger society, uh, the law as as a real force for change in the society, uh, whatever people's desires are there, the legal education that they're obtaining uh, gives them the tools to do that and in a way uh, validates their judgment in seeking to become lawyers. You know, I always, when young people ask me whether they should study the law, I always ask them two questions. The first is, uh, you know, do you like solving intellectual policies and kind of intellectual combat? And the second question, which is the more important question, is do you get satisfaction out of helping people on an individual or other basis or on advancing values that you care about? And if the answer to both those questions are yes, if you like the intellectual combat and you get satisfaction and your goal is to help people and advance your values, then you certainly should become a lawyer. Um, I think you're giving you're giving would-be law students great advice. That's yeah. good. I agree with that completely. That's a good way to think about it. But now as law students enter and come into law school, uh, we're fa- they're faced with, you mentioned the, the, the effects and now of what's going on and issues of, of racism and, and, and the George Floyd and the, the protests. But in addition to that, it, before and at the same time, there are the impacts of, of COVID uh, and the move to online education to avoid the difficulties of, of the pandemic. Uh, it's affected universities in the spring quarter semester where universities closed down. Uh, the Harvard Law School has just announced that the entire fall semester at Harvard will be online. So this is where a lot of your background in dealing with technology and in academic leadership comes in. Can online education uh, be as effective? And what are UCLA's plans for the fall semester? How do you plan? Uh, You have just asked about... You've just asked about half a dozen very good questions. Yeah. I mean, this, look, this spring has been challenging. Um, there's no way around that. We, we pivoted to move online virtually overnight. Uh, we, we are not a school that had previously done a lot of online legal education. We, we believed and continue to believe in the value of the face to face classroom and the ability to engage passionately in small groups um, together in person. And yet we, we went to online overnight and my, my colleagues did a really pretty tremendous job with it under the circumstances, which doesn't mean it all went perfectly. But I do think that um, in the midst of this pandemic, uh, what we were able to do and the way we were able to continue our focus on, on educating our students while also being supportive and empathetic in a very difficult set of circumstances. Um, there's just an incredible amount I'm proud of. Um, what comes next is a very big question. Uh, yes, yesterday, Harvard Law School announced that they would be entirely online for the fall semester. Uh, where things stand for us at UCLA is more uncertain, honestly. Uh, we are aiming to have a blend of in-person and online uh, class sessions. I can tell you that there is no universe in which um, this coming fall will look like last fall. Um, certainly public health mandates and the need to, to, you know, mitigate risk will mean that a great deal of our coursework will have to be online. We are trying very hard, uh, to create pathways for some in-person education as a piece of what we're doing in the fall. But quite honestly, right now, we don't know whether that will fit um, with with Los Angeles public health uh, requirements um, and with, you know, UCLA's uh, whole campus decision. So we're moving forward with a plan that would be hybrid, um, where students would have some small in-person opportunities, um, especially focused on clinical and experiential classes and the first year. But we will we'll have to see whether we're able to do that safely. And what is clear is that a number of our courses will absolutely be online and that any student who wants to continue to make progress toward their degree 
only online will have the opportunity to do that as well. That part is clear. Um, so these are these are you know these are really challenging um, issues and questions. I think uh, deans right now feel like they're playing games of six-dimensional chess as they try to contingency plan for an enormous variety of circumstances. But you ask a really a bigger question too, which is, you know, how do you do excellent online education? And I do think that's possible. Although I also think we are committed to our more agonistic face-to-face engagements, and we look forward to being able to get back to those as well. Um, but it's been interesting to see what's worked well and where there have been more challenges as we've as we've taken um, the classroom experience virtually and done so, you know, in really short order. One 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 positive thing is that now we have uh, the summer to really um, focus on and invest in making the online portion of our education even stronger and better and more thoughtful. But but there have been there have been some pluses and some silver linings um, to the to the pivot to be online. Um, although there have also been some some very major losses and challenges. And what is it? It's not only the impact that COVID has had on on the incoming class on legal education, but I know you're in cl- you're in touch with your graduating class, those who have received their degrees this year, who are anticipating a certain job market uh, and a future that is now looks a little different. What kind of challenges are you hearing from your recent graduates in terms of their their career objectives? Well, certainly the the market for lawyers has shifted compared to what they were expecting just uh, just a few months ago, um, and you know this comes after uh, a period where um, you know we at UCLA had an, an incredibly successful year for our graduating class from 2019, um, and certainly our recent grads, you know, are going to face some additional um, challenges, probably in the short term, but also in the medium term. Um, I do think that that crises do create legal opportunities and the need for lawyers as problem solvers. So in the, I, I guess I do think that although there's a lot of um, uncertainty, anxiety, and disruption, uh, the need for the skills that lawyers bring to bear is not decreasing. In fact, if anything, it's increasing. That doesn't mean that some firms aren't engaging in, um, you know, layoffs and some public interest uh, organizations are, are very anxious about philanthropy and, um, and, and the grants that they need to do their work, right? So I don't at all mean to diminish or dismiss the very substantial challenges. Um, but I do think that the skills that lawyers have to, to solve problems, to, to analyze carefully, to um, help move things forward. I mean, those are all, you know, skills that, that are, that are as, even more necessary um, in this period of really deep crisis for our nation. We did have a number of 2Ls that, that, uh, that found their summer dramatically changed. Um, many, many law firms for second year students shortened their programs. Um, some eliminated their programs. A few told students sorry, too bad, you just lost your job, more tried to uh, find a middle ground and at least do some kind of virtual program and or um, continue to give the students some of what they were expecting to earn. Um, but yeah, it's a changed world, no question. And one of the things that, that's happened, you know, that, that has led, talking about legal education and it gets back to the online area also, is one of the enormous, uh, one of the great areas of growth in, in legal education over a period now of a couple of decades at least has been not only the growth in, in legal clinics, which can help to meet some of the demand for access to justice, but also yes. the growth in the use of adjunct faculty. Law schools are very different things today uh, than they were uh, even 10 or 15 years ago in, in terms of that. I take it the, the use of adjuncts, so many of the specialized classes in areas, the advanced classes in particular areas, especially where adjuncts come in, that online education, online, doing those online will be a very special challenge, and just as the clinics may present a very special challenge. Are those things you're also looking at in terms of how they keep going? Absolutely. So I was really incredibly proud and inspired at the way that our clinics have been and were able to continue working 
even with the pivot to remote. Um, it's a challenge. There's no question. And it's especially a challenge for clinics that are working with vulnerable populations where, where the client's access to, to technology and the ability to engage remotely may also be reduced. And also, um, even if it's not, even if remote engagement is possible, it can be harder to build, you know, trust with, with, with clients, um, over, over, you know, remote methods rather than being able to be in the same room. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, we have a, a really broad array of clinics at the law school that we're incredibly proud of. And they're, they're absolutely continuing and they will be continuing in the fall, um, you know, whether they're online or in person and, um, doing really um, meaningful work, um, both on behalf of their clients and also training our students to be, you know, lawyers and leaders and compassionate, compassionate lawyers who are uh, able to make a difference. A couple of our clinics, we have a, an immigration clinic that's located at a school in the schools in Koreatown. It's part of the, the, the school that's at the complex that um, used to be the Ambassador Hotel at the UCLA Community School. And of course, the extent to which they're able to operate um, in their usual way will depend on what LAUSD is, is doing in the fall too. So there's a lot of both synergies and complexities. Uh, we also have a clinic that's located at the VA that works with veterans and helping to, veterans to, to both uh, get benefits, but also to help homeless veterans clear, tinic, uh, clear tickets and um, does all kinds of other work with, um, you know, with a population that, that, that really benefits from the assistance. And we're going to do our utmost to keep these clinics going. Yeah. By, by the way, um, in terms of the, of the issue of trust, uh, and I just, I just paused for a moment in my own mind when you mentioned the clinic at, at the Ambassador Hotel, cause I was one of those who was there on the night of June 4th, 1968. So oh my goodness. every mention of oh the Ambassador goodness. Hotel, uh, brings a certain right. set of emotions. But, uh, you, you know, in terms of, um, uh, in terms of gathering, getting trust from people who don't have access to technology, you know, there may be an area here for developing whole new outreach ways to do this. And the model to look at, uh, for a very strange reason, I've followed telemedicine very closely o- over the years. And one of the largest areas of telemedicine is telepsychiatry. You would think that it would be the least useful in telemedicine, but it turns out, and this is true not only with synchronous telemedicine, where a psychiatrist or counselor is on one end of a true live connection talking like on Zoom with, with a patient. Mm-hmm. It's also true asynchronously, where a, a patient essentially talks to a video recorder, and that is then later played for the therapist who comes back uh, with certain recommendations that the patient listens to, because it turns out that there are a great many people who are very comfortable talking to a camera, in some cases more comfortable to a camera than to a person. And there is a great deal that can be found by watching a face on uh, on, on a screen. And so there are other areas where there has been, this has worked, by the way, you talk about people who need services. Telepsychiatry really began in Arizona on the Indian, on the Navajo reservation, especially, but the general reservations were because of distance uh, professionals could not be brought to the site. Uh, and so there is a whole, whole range of experience in dealing with building distance trust. And it may be that going into communities and establishing small satellite offices where people come in who have no access to technology and who are encouraged to communicate in this way and use what's been learned by the telepsychiatrists in terms of building trust that could open up the opportunity for making a real a real outreach in a trusted way to a great many people who now are barred because of their lack of access to technology. I that's fascinating and and in, and potentially inspiring, right? I mean that's an example of the ways in which uh you know necessity tools that we're forced to go uh explore in more detail um may turn out to have some real benefits. I mean, we did see this even in some ways in our spring classes in the following way. There, it turns out there are some students who are much more comfortable participating in class on screen than they are physically in the classroom or were more comfortable offering their thoughts via the written synchronous chat that was happening alongside Zoom than they are at having to, you know, speak out loud to their classmates. And so we can see that these different modalities, um, you know, there may be losses for sure, but there also can be gains and there can be ways in which you might be able to reach or connect 
um, that weren't available in the traditional in-person, face-to-face way. But also what we know, and, and you know from all your studies of technology, is new technology is not just an addition to current ways of doing things. Sometimes it just changes the way things develop. You know, favorite example is the first internal, first steam engines or combustion engines uh, where horses didn't need to be used on carriages and everything was referred to as a horseless carriage and they were literally built that way. They were built like a carriage that was pulled by horses and the driver sat up in front on the bench and that's what it was. And pretty soon people realized, wait a minute, this is something entirely different. This is not just right. an old-fashioned no. carriage without horses. And, no, that's right. And as, as, so when you get into using the technology... Uh, in, in online, you know, people now are, again, in terms of preparing for trial practice, a lot of people are consulting, uh, TV and movie directors because suddenly they're on the camera and they want to know about lighting and makeup and what's most effective on screen and how the, you know, and, and so basically doing a dispute resolution process, mediation or arbitration online begins to need, require an additional or different set of skills and it becomes, a different process in the way that, uh, you know, as you do trial work today, mo- many trials are simply pre-taped television shows. I mean, the witnesses have all been taken by video deposition and, and, uh, and their elaborate psychological, uh, uh, studies as well as advice given to trial lawyers on how to use the equivalent of telephone, te- television technology. So th- this goes, I think, to the range of what law schools will have to deal with in preparing the students for the practice of law. I think you're right. And I think it's actually, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's got a lot of interesting possibilities, but it's also, it's also challenging because especially when we think about how people perceive and learn on screens and how they react, um, small differences may affect perceptions pretty dramatically. Um, so, for example, there's a, a psychologist who's done some studies about interrogation and who's found that uh, people's perception of whether an interrogation was or wasn't coercive can depend a great deal on the camera angle. Um, and that's very interesting to know, but it's also problematic because if, it, if our interpretations can be drastically impacted by aspects of the production value that we may not even be aware of, that's, that, that, that creates something new that we, we're all going to have to learn about and focus on in thoughtful ways across the legal system. Oh, I, you know, I think this opens up the whole areas, and this especially applies. I want to talk because you do so much at, at, at UCLA in legal education, not just in terms of clinics, but specialized programs in terms of preparing students, you know, in ways that I think Students were not prepared for a long, long time. Uh, let's talk about, you mentioned the immigration clinic, but on the other side, you have this very successful uh, entertainment program uh, for students we who do. want to go I... into entertainment law. I think we should, I think that's well worth people hearing a great deal about. Sure. Uh, we're incredibly proud of our different institute for media, entertainment, technology, and sports law. And it's, uh, you know, we're often said to be the top School for entertainment law, and I think that's I think that's true. I will say, as dean, it's just one of the many areas that we're really, really strong in. Um, there's a bunch of others too, but uh, certainly for us in LA, uh, entertainment's a very big one. And our Ziffern Institute gives our students tremendous opportunities. It is a place where we do have a set of very experienced practitioners come in as adjuncts and teach some specialized courses in. Um, you know, everything from film financing to the guilds to, you know, just all kinds of things. We also have two incredible clinics. Uh, we have a documentary film clinic where our students uh, get to help with legal issues for uh, documentary filmmakers that are uh, working on projects. Um, we even had a few of our students get to go to Sundance, the film festival, uh, where they got a shout out from the, the filmmaker that, that was uh, premiering there and with whom they'd worked. And they have the chance to do some presentations. We also have a music law clinic. We have a number of students who come with big music law interests. And we have really a, a terrific music law clinic that, that helps students, that, that gives students the opportunity to work on, on, uh, issues surrounding music law. And so we aim in this program. We also have a corner office, uh, uh program where really, um, top lawyers and studio leaders and others um, come meet with small groups of students. We, we work hard to connect our current students 
to alums in the area. And we also um, think about um, social justice issues there, too. Um, we're very interested in the questions of how to make the representations we see on screen, you know, fairer and more representative. And that's something um, our students are, are, are concerned about, too. You know, the, it, it's it's one program. I mean, our we have so many other programs. That but before you, I'm sorry to interrupt. Are, I'm sorry to interrupt you. But before we move off entertainment, I don't think we can talk about, you mentioned, as we talked about it, the Ziffrin Entertainment Program. I don't think we can yes. let it pass that this all developed. Uh, because of a couple of incredibly generous donations by Ken Ziffrin uh, to, uh, to to start the program, and that's why it's so casually referred to now as the uh, as the Ziffrin Entertainment Program. It's but- exactly right. It's the Ziffrin Institute, thanks to um, you know Ken's really tremendous generosity. Uh, he also teaches for us every year, um, and he's been just he's been I I've learned from him. I consider him a friend, and it's been a really tremendous privilege to partner with him in making our entertainment offerings and our entertainment program so strong. And one of the incredible, one of the great things about the program, which it goes to, again, goes to the challenge of online education, is that when people consider where they want to put their effort, if they want to go into entertainment law or the entertainment industry, it's not just the education that's done in the classroom uh, or in the clinic or with the adjunct people, but it's the opportunity to meet people in the field, to get to know people, whether going to Sundance, meeting at studios, being introduced to lawyers. It's that aspect that adds so much, not just to the quality of education, but to the quality of the opportunity for the student who wants to go into entertainment law. Uh, and, that's and, right. and that's the most difficult thing when you talk about whatever the gains are online, the loss of that connection of those opportunities, uh, substituting well, for that will be a real challenge. You're right. Although we are trying, we're learning how to do some of that virtually, right? I mean, again, I don't want to, I, I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish about this. And boy, do I look forward to the time when we can be back on campus in as, as, as dense a fashion as usual. And when, you know, social distancing is not, does not have to be, um, you know, part of our, our daily experience. Um, but what I will say, one of the things we've learned um, with the vir- with, virtually is that it is possible to have to have talks and discussions and forms of engagement virtually that can be meaningful and powerful too, um, and that sometimes we can get access to to people and opportunities that might have been too busy to you know fight the Los Angeles traffic or get on an airplane, but when it's meeting with a small group on Zoom, they're game and willing. Such an interesting point. I want you to go on the same way. But, you know, we've seen that in mediation, for example, by going to online mediations on Zoom, often a real problem was, could you reach a decision maker in another part of the country? People had to fly in for the whole day. Perhaps it was, you know, the the presence of an expert for 30, 30 minutes during the mediation that made a real difference was that person going to fly across the country or get on the telephone and this way the ability to bring people in in the online platform in terms of scheduling uh it's, it opens up a whole world of scheduling that never existed before so i thought your your comments That's right. yeah so i think i mean that that we all will think a little bit harder about whether a particular engagement necessitates getting on a plane or whether there might be a way to do it just as well virtually, right? And sometimes the answer will be, no, this really does need to take place in person. But other times, um, I mean, I think in the academic world, we're likely to see more virtual conferences and some forms of engagement that now take place virtually even when they don't have to. I mean, certainly when we went through our admissions cycle at UCLA this year, normally, you know, my admissions director would have been getting on lots of airplanes and I would have been getting on some and we would have been doing receptions in, you know, San Francisco and Washington and New York. And and we'll do those again. It's not that we'll stop doing those. But the creativity that we had to put into finding alternatives taught us some things that we will continue to use even when we are getting back on airplanes and, you know, have, well, even when we have, when we have the flexibility to be doing more in person. Now, you've talked about among. And I think that's going to be true for the profession. Too. Oh, I think we, uh, there'll be a huge adaptation in terms of part, this becoming a permanent part, not a whole, but a permanent part of our lives. But in addition to the entertainment, yeah. uh, institute and that you've talked about, of course, 
You have a very active environmental law program uh, that constantly is dealing. Tell us about that. I know the, the Emmett Institute and, and the, the work you do in environmental law, both clinically and academically, is a major You've, you've received international notice uh, recognition for that. Tell yes, us something about I, that. I, I, I think it's not just decanal hyperbole for me to say that I truly think we have the strongest environmental law faculty of any school in the country. We have a tremendous cluster of faculty in this area, and they're all active as scholars, um, but they're also engaged in real-world problem-solving. And so the Emmett Institute becomes a vehicle for both. And this, too, is thanks in significant part to the generosity of of our philanthropic founder here, Dan Emmett. Dan is not actually a UCLA alum. Um, Ken Different is. Um, Dan went to Stanford undergrad and then Harvard Law School, um, and he he generously funds those schools as well. Um, but he's he lives here in LA and he cares deeply about the environment and he saw the potential to do something important at UCLA Law School. And um, he's, um, we've had a number of other ge- generous donors in the space, but he's been um, extraordinary uh, as a as a partner that has helped us be able to, to make a difference. Um, the Emmett Institute has, you know, contributes in all kinds of ways. We, again, have a clinic. We have a terrific clinic, a policy clinic in the space, the, the Frank Wells Environmental Law Clinic. Um, we have a specialization for our students, um, and we have a number of students. I mean, if you look around the state at rising environmental leaders, uh, a non-trivial number of them, um, you know, came from UCLA Law School, and we're uh, we're incredibly proud of that. Um, we've also played a role. We the, the Emmett Institute gets involved in a lot of amicus briefs. They do a lot of white papers. They're a partner for. Um, both NGOs and for the state in thinking about environmental challenges. Um, and they do just, you know, a good deal of policy relevant research there too. We give our students some pretty incredible opportunities. Our students have gotten to go to major climate conferences as, um, and, and not even just as observers. Um, they've been credentialed um, on the behalf of uh, small island nations and gotten to participate in negotiations. They've, uh, they've, really get to have some pretty extraordinary opportunities when, when, even while they're just in law school. When I think back to my time in law school, I loved law school, but I really didn't have nearly the degree of opportunity for these kinds of policy experiences and engagements that I think we're able to offer our students now. Now, I'm very proud of what we're doing at UCLA, but I think that's also a sea change across law schools. I don't think that's a UCLA story. I think that's a, a transformation of legal education story. Um, so I'm, I'm certainly think we're a good example of it. Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, the Langdell model dominated legal education for so long and essentially was a preparation for appellate advocates and appellate judges uh, and first uh, moved then to more practical concerns so that people could actually practice law. But now the law schools adapt to the world and a huge change in uh, in legal education. Professor Kingsfield is no longer uh, the model of legal education no in any way. I- and the model is much, much better, more humane, more human, and I think more effective in terms of what people do in law schools today. I totally agree with that. I don't think there's a king's field among, uh, among us anymore. Although I do think that the critical thinking skills and the analytic skills that the first year of law school in particular developed still, still are an important oh. piece of the training that we're offering. Oh, no, they're the base. I, when I taught, I enjoyed teaching the first year classes more than anything because that is the time when you use the phrase, think like a lawyer, when the essential critical skills are developed. And that will always be a foundation of legal education. But that still leaves two more years. And it's what has happened in those two other years, especially the third year and even the second, that has made such a huge difference in the in the skills and effectiveness with which students leave law schools today, which in a strange circle gets us back to the whole question of how we should qualify people and license them to become lawyers I mean, here you have people doing incredible work in international conferences in environmental law, uh, in entertainment law, moving into those areas. And yet, by and large, when they take the bar exam, uh, the bar exam consists of the equivalent of something that I don't know has ever happened to any lawyer. 
of a client coming in and saying, I have this problem. I'm telling you what it is. I'm now going to leave your office for 50 minutes and I'm going to come back and I want you, <laughs> without looking at a single book, to write out the analysis of what I should do. I don't think there's ever been yes. a client who posed the issue that way. And yet to No, it's exactly right. You're you know. exactly right. I mean, it's, it's quite far from what is required in actual practice. And I mean, you know, especially in this era of access to technology where we all have the equivalent of powerful little computers in, in, in the form of our phone, when we have, you know, incredible databases that let us look things up. It's, it's, it remains quite a memory intensive test and its relationship to the skills you really need for the practice of law is, is, is sort of dubious at best. What's also true is that, you know, our students come with such an array of, of interests. I mean, this past year, we are just creating two new institutes and centers, um, one focusing on immigration and another on uh, technology law and policy. Uh, we're proud at UCLA. We're, one of, we're the only school with a critical race studies program. Again, especially in this moment, that seems, you know, like something that, that more schools should be um, engaging deeply in, and we're proud that we've done that for a long time. Um, we also have, you know, an absolutely terrific business and tax faculty and the Lowell Milken Institute for Business Law and Policy that many of our students engage in. The Promise Institute for Human Rights is doing incredible things and and many students of ours are have, have deep interest in, in human rights issues. And and yet because of the bar exam, students spend some of their time taking classes simply because they're on the bar. And I mean, I'm all for the idea that there is a core of knowledge that every lawyer should have, but I don't know that it makes sense that so many of our students take community property and remedies, to just give two examples, simply because they're on the California bar exam, no matter what their interests, hopes, and goals are. Well, my, so my example, my up, example, pardon me for interrupting you, but true about that, my please. example is the class in wills. Uh, you know, the truth, right. truth of the matter is we, he we hesitate to admit it, but very few lawyers today draft a will. And to the extent advice is given on estate planning, again, it's a subject that must not be discussed. But in fact, the life insurance industry and the accounting industry have taken over a great deal of what is estate planning. These are realities that we don't recognize when we seek to qualify people. But what you've done, Jennifer Manukin and I say Dean Manukin, for what you've done at UCLA for this discussion, uh, it is wonderful to hear what you're doing, what UCLA is doing, what's been achieved, its greatness, uh, the modern challenges of legal education. And to hear you talk about what you're doing, I think, gives everyone confidence that despite the great challenges we face, you are leading and educating students and lawyers that will help meet those challenges. We want to thank everyone who's listened to this program. I want to add that if you would like, in terms of knowing more about these issues, about the bar exam, legal education, legal practice, there are in the Daily Journal, in the archives of the Daily Journal, many news stories, columns, that can easily be searched, bookmarked, used for research. If you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you have access to those. If you're not a subscriber and you're listening to this outside the paywall on dailyjournal.com, you will see on that site a button that will permit you to subscribe and to have access to that treasure trove of materials to add to understanding of what we've spoken about. But once again, Jennifer, I want to thank you for being on this podcast and also for what you and UCLA are doing. Uh, in all areas of, of law and life. Thank you so much. 